0: Before we get started, a message from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies wholeheartedly believes that if you get the right people, the results will follow. They set themselves apart with a forward-thinking culture that empowers their people and fosters loyal partnerships. They are also proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of this podcast.
1: Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary.
0: Last December, my wife and I were invited to a concert at a friend's house. It's the first time that we'd ever been invited to a concert at a friend's house. We had no idea who was performing, no idea what the idea was behind this, and no idea how profoundly moved we would be during the event. After about 95 minutes of music and stories and sharing and inspiration and wiping tears and laughing and loving and being profoundly moved, the concert ended and everyone else stood to walk into the room to meet the composer and to meet the the musicians. And I just sat there. I just sat in this room, uh, unable to move and, and still not even sure what I just experienced. But what I knew for sure, it was the kind of experience that not only would change my life, but the kind of experience I wanted to share with our audience. I knew I wanted to share it in a podcast, but I also knew I wanted to share it as part of our book launch. The book launch event was in May, and due to COVID-19, unfortunately, it was canceled. But COVID-19 could not cancel this podcast. It could not cancel the conversation that you are about to hear with the composer, with this phenomenal guy, with this incredible servant. His name is Eric Jenis, and I'm not going to go through Eric's brag sheet. I'm not going to go through his work and his titles and the impact that he's had around the world. We're gonna go through that together because you get to meet my friend, this composer, an amazing man, his name is Eric Jenis. Eric, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Thank you so much, John, and thank you for your kind words. It's great, it's wonderful to be here. It was wonderful to meet you and your wife at the night of that show, it was a great show.
0: (laughs) It was, I don't know how most of your shows go down, but I'm telling you right now, that was life changing. And for the few times that I looked around the room uh, away from you and your musicians, uh, occasionally I glanced at my wife as she she was equally as engaged as I was. And then I'd look around at everybody else and it's like everything disappeared. The the phones, the stress, the markets, everything disappeared. And we were lasered in, not on you, but on the heart and on the music. So uh, when I bring on guests, I frequently will introduce them as my friend. Which is lovely. And I feel like they are my friends. But today, Eric, without a doubt, brother, we've been doing life together for the last nine months. We text, we talk, we share hearts and prayers together. So uh, Mm -hmm. to our friends listening right now, I welcome a friend into their life. So Eric, welcome, man.
1: Thank you so much, John. It's an honor to be here
0: you uh, might be able to do a little bit of a better job in the introduction of the work you do today than I've done. We'll sure. go through the story, but when you get asked, Eric, what do you do professionally? What do you do professionally? Sure. How do you respond? Well,
1: yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, if it's okay, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna sort of take where you, the, the introduction, the beautiful introduction you gave, and just sort of comment on that because that describes what I'm trying to do with my work. So I'm a composer. So I compose music, and I compose music for the violin, the cello, and the piano, and the singer. So every tour I go out, there's always the same four. It's piano, violin, cello, and a singer. And I go and I give concerts. And John, so I play in a lot of very dark places. So this year, if COVID didn't hit, I would have played my 1,000th prison show. I go into, you know, the, the darkest corners of America. I play in prisons, and rehab centers, and inner city schools. and and you know, for the elderly, for veterans that are suffering, I play under bridges for homeless people, like I play everywhere for people that would never get to hear the violin and the cello played at a world-class level. And so, but you know, sort of why I do it is the purpose to go and entertain for an hour. John, I, I do it because of exactly what you described at the beginning. There is something about music and it's unspeakable, it's it's mystical. There's it carry, it can, it can carry with it beauty. It's almost like music is a truck and and the the cargo is beauty. Mm. And beauty, we're all called and moved and and we react and we're elevated when we're exposed to beauty. That's just the human condition. And so what I was hoping that happened that night of the show that I was playing um, for your family and for the family of the concert was that people were uplifted. They were not only uplifted, but they saw their own humanity in a way that was elevated, that they saw their culture in a way that was elevated. And I'm really convinced of that when I go into these dark, dark places. So I go into these, you know, maximum security prisons and very heavily gang prisons and super maximum security prisons and death row. And, you know, Mm. I did three days in um, Angola not too long ago. And the reaction from the prisoners is very strong.
0: So I wanna go through the stories, through the reactions, through the music, through the journey from being a world-class composer because I, I would imagine there are some cynical folks listening right now thinking, gosh, I, I bet this guy just brings out his accordion and, and you know how sweet of him to play, like, yeah, sort of. But, but this is a world-class composer who brings in world-class musicians to provide a life-changing experience for people who may and usually have not ever experienced that. So Eric, the journey to that decision that you've made to give away your life, to invest in these people, like in, in the least among us, these dark corners that are so frequently overlooked by so many of us, I want to hear about the journey toward that. So you grew up not in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm from, not even in the United States, man, you grew up way yeah. north in Toronto, Canada. Talk about growing up <laughs> in, in Canada.
1: So it was me and I have, four, I have three other brothers, so there was four boys and it was you know in canada you're 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 born with skates on your feet and so you know <laughs> hockey was always a big part of our life when we weren't at the rink um you know sneaking in we were playing on the street and uh and so yeah my our family life we just had a, a wonderful you know upbringing in toronto playing hockey with my three brothers and and it was it was just great music was always a big part of it i basically john my life was p- practicing the piano and then out in the street playing hockey and uh, then I became a, a school teacher. I went to university to, to study teaching, but John, I, I always had the, the, the bug to go and, and to play my music. And so when I got my, I, I did my teaching degree and my piano degree at the same time. And I just started, I, I composed very seriously and started just going out playing who, for who would ever listen.
0: Mm. When did you realize it wasn't just a, a bar trick? that you could play the piano well. It wasn't just something that you could imitate someone else's music, but you, you had a gift to compose.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. When I was a child, like very young, I was composing um, from, from very young. And it was always, it was like a boy playing with Lego. You know, I was just, I was at play the piano. I would practice my Bach and practice my Beethoven, but then I would just start composing and, and all of a sudden life opened up and it was, it was just discovery. It's that awe and wonder for life that we should all have you know just creativity it was beautiful i have this 88 key piano and it's endless as to what it could be it's an orchestra it's huge you know and so um i've always composed john and it was never really oh i'm going to be a composer i composed because it i just loved it and i just i i love i just love creating so it's the kind of thing where even if i never performed again composing always means a great deal to me. So from a very young age, I composed but I never ever really thought I would take it seriously. So I became a physics and math teacher. <laughs>
0: so take, a, take us forward from there. Cause I, I can understand how a hockey player goes from Pee Wee up through the leagues and eventually ends up in the NHL. I can understand that progression. I don't understand the progression as easily to go from uh, taking off your skates and practicing next to your mother a few times, Bach or Mozart, <laughs> whatever it may have been to being in front of symphonies around the world as you once were. T- talk about that progression.
1: Well, when I was a kid, so what happened was I was 10 years old and I thought, uh, one summer I thought, let me see how good at this thing I can get. So it wasn't any love for music. I just, wa- I just wanted the challenge. So I thought if I practice you know, an hour a day at 10, I thought, let me see how good I can get. Well, John, it became addicting because you, you soon realize that if you practice you become proficient and you, you become good at this instrument and so becoming good was exciting to me so I practiced and practiced to the point where my mother came um, with a vacuum cleaner beside the piano and started vacuuming and saying go do something else you know and so um, I, I just and, and then from there John I took off I just I loved to play but it was never practical I always thought what am I gonna do with this thing? What, you know, with, with this music? I really didn't enjoy very much playing anybody else's music. I didn't enjoy, like I enjoyed my lessons and learning, but yeah. I love composing and it, it was such a difference. So I learned Beethoven cause I had to. So very often my piano teacher would say, so how's your Beethoven coming along? And I'd say, it's not, but you should hear my latest piece. And she would say, oh, I'm not interested in your latest piece. Tell me about Beethoven and so it was always that that just desire to compose so when I got my degree John that was the last time I played anybody else's music I just started I just started composing I had a sheer love for composing I didn't even have an outlet because I wasn't performing yeah. at that point when I got my degree everything stopped I became a teacher I had an income I was teaching math and physics and so everything else stopped, but I kept composing and practicing my music and playing my music just out of sheer love for it. I never thought I would ever perform again.
0: And then what, what changed?
1: I didn't like the fact that pianists and violinists and great players would really appeal to those who go to concert halls and that, you know, people who weren't able to do that or never had that outlet was never, were never exposed to the greatest works of music you know, John. So what I decided to do was I thought I will play for anybody that ever wants to hear. And so, um, so what I started doing was I, I, you know, became a church organist and then I played, um, I was a church organist since I was 11, but then I I played more. And then afterwards I would stay and play more. And then people started saying, Hey, I'm doing a fundraiser. Would you come and and then people started asking more and more and then, Oh, can I buy your CD? I don't have a CD, you know, and so it just kind of, and then it, it, the demand got to be um, very strong, and I had to make a decision: am I going to stay in teaching and stay with security, or am I going to jump? And jumping was quite scary, John, because in Canada, teaching is a very secure, well-paid position. And so leaving that, there's always a hundred people looking for your job there. And so, John, I I left, and and I you know and and I started performing a great deal. But I promised I would never say no. So then what happened was I would play everywhere, everywhere. And then someone said, would you play in the prison? I do work in the prison. John, I went in prison and that was the biggest eye opener of my life. And that was at almost a thousand prison shows
0: ago. <laughs> Let's back up 998 shows ago to, to where this began because I know that's your heart today. And for the m- majority of our listeners who've never stepped into a prison, I don't think they have any idea of how terrifying, of how dirty, of how sad, of how dark and dreary, divided. I mean, we think it's divided outside of the walls. I man, step into a prison house. It is an incredibly divided and a lifeless place. And scary, Eric. Talk about your very first experience walking into a prison.
1: Yes, you're, you're right on all those accounts. Um, so I remember driving up to it, and the barbed wire is eerie. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, you and I started talking about beauty and how it affects. The prisons are the ugliest places on the planet. So I'm looking at all this barbed wire and it's very high. And then you're looking in the towers and you're seeing people in the towers who are there to oversee everything. They wouldn't need people to oversee everything if everything was peaceful. So you're, you're reminded constantly there's violence here. There's hatred here there's anger, there's revenge. So even just driving up, you have a sense of this is not a good place. So you go through security, just like at an airport, then you go through door number one and then it closes. So suddenly you're in almost like a 12 by 12 cage yourself for just the other one starts to open when the first one closes. But you suddenly realize I have no phone, I have no means of communicating anybody. I'm very vulnerable here. And suddenly, you know you're in a different place when that first door closes you are somewhere else and it's not good you're right it's not life-giving at all there's nothing you would never be inspired when you look inside a prison and even the grounds often the grounds are not well kept you know that it's not like oh there's nice thriving manicured grass you know, the, the, often the furniture, the, the outdoor furniture, patio furniture is broken. So when that second door closed, John, and I was fully into the prison with all my gear, I knew I am somewhere else. And it was very eerie. I just thought there's something so unhuman about this existence.
0: So you walk in, in into this experience and you eventually set up the gear and you're about to perform in front of folks, men who don't want you there who have never been classically trained never heard heard of Bach or listened to Beethoven never heard of violin or anything else that you're about to play for them in all likelihood what is that like as you are about as they're filling the room and you're reflecting gosh these guys are coming in against their wishes frequently and I'm the one that um is about to play and perform in front of them what what are you thinking before the show begins yeah.
1: So in, it, I'm, I'm thinking everything you just commented on. I'm thinking about while I'm setting up, it usually takes me close to two hours to set up because I have a whole sound system. So dragging all my gear there, we set up and then they start walking in and when they walk into the, into the room, most of the time, John, they just can't walk in. They have to walk in and be searched and they have to be, make sure their name is on the list they are accounted yeah. for. And then they count all the prisoners. And so they walk in, and there's, there's often, in this one particular, it was in Texas, the maximum security prison in Texas, there's, there's no, uh, you know, sort of just kindness. It's you over there. And then one inmate sat in the wrong seat and, you know, a, a guard sort of barked, you know, not the third, the second row, you know, and it's not, it's not like, excuse me, sir, do you mind just going in the second row? No, it's yelling. It's barking. You, second row. But what, what I marveled at is the, the guard, or as they call the correctional officer, he was maybe early 20s. The inmate was maybe late 60s. And I thought, okay, there's a breakdown. I know he's an inmate, and I know he's a guard. And you know, and I know that you have to flex your muscles, and you have to let him know that you're in charge. And I understand that. Um, is it impossible? And maybe it is. I'm not judging anybody or how they act. I'm just commenting on the scene. Is it impossible to show a certain courtesy to this man who is old enough to be your grandfather? You know. But maybe not, John, because these correctional officers are always, I mean, these poor guys, they suffer from PTSD. They're always sort of looking around and making sure that, you know, that nothing's happening to them. It's a very, to a certain degree, John, a very toxic place. You just get a sense of some people, not all, but some inmates are trying to get away with as much as they can. The guards are often the brunt of situations. And, it's, and so you become aware of that very quickly when you look at interactions. And certain people seem to be very keen, it's almost like a high school, keen on sitting beside other people and, and you think, okay, what's going on? And, and, I, and, I'll, and I will never forget in reflecting back, I didn't really realize what was going on, but one guy wrote me a letter and said, Eric, everybody loved your concert. And I know that, he said, because usually when, you're in, when, when there's a, a public event, there's drug deals. There's death threats. There's violence. There's all kinds of things going on. There's signals. There's gangs. There's everything. There was none of that going on in your concert. And all I could think was, okay, nobody was killing anybody at my concert. That's good.
0: <laughs> so That's John Douthwaite, well, <laughs> it's a starting point. You know, no, no drug yeah. deals. No, no, uh, no yeah. killings during your concert. At what point did you look up from playing? I'm assuming you're seated at the piano during that concert. Yes. Did you look up and realize? I it's working. You know what I'm like, it's, it's like the thing I'd hoped and prayed for that thing is happening. When did you realize that? You know what, John,
1: within the first 20 seconds, because in the beginning of the show, I walked up and down and I told these guys what they were about to hear. I didn't just sit and start playing. So there is no judgment here. This is just Mm -hmm. one brother to another sharing what I have a little gift to share. And I brought three extraordinary soloists. And so I'm walking up and down the aisle, talking to them about the violin, talking to them about the cello, talking to them about the effects of music. For example, John, one of the most beautiful sayings was, uh, you know, Confucius said, and I'm paraphrasing, if you want to know the morality of a nation, let me hear the music, not the textbooks, not talk to the teachers. He said the music. Because music isn't just...
0: just, with, With the chaos of the days we live in and with... Cardi B and everybody else being celebrated as the heroes of our world right now. I want you to say that quote one more, one more time for our listeners, because we've got to understand at least what some wisdom from the ages says about the value of the music that is being put out there by society and, and the judgment it yes. cast upon that society. So say the Confucius quote one more time.
1: Yes. In, in paraphrasing, he said, if you want to know the morality of a nation, he said, let me hear the music, period. That gives you an idea of how long we've understood about the power and the impact of music. John, can I jump to something and then I'll come back to that story? John, nothing was so evident when you talk about a lot of our modern music. I played for a room full of 15-year-old boys that were tried and convicted as adults. These were 15-year-olds that were going away for 30 plus years, 30 years. They've probably been in the system in and out so many times. And finally, they just said, that's it. This is hopeless 30 years. And you think, oh my. And this one boy stood up at the end of the show and he said, and I was warned um, by the, the, the warden before the show, you're going to have nothing in common with these kids. These kids are, are, are black, you're white, you're old, they're young. You're not going to reach them at all. And I thought, well, I'm not, but maybe the music will. And so, John, this boy, at the end of the he had a million questions for the violin and the cello. At the end, he stood up and he said, that violin is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Can I hear it alone? Then my violinist played, and he he threw back his head, and he sighed, and he went, why have I never heard that before? Mm -hmm. I went to the back of the room, and I said to the back of the room, there was judges there, lawyers there, there was police there, there was press there, there was... um, uh prison administration there i said anybody want to join me in, in a public apology to this boy we live in the day and age of the internet no boy should grow up in america and have not been exposed to something that moves him so he was so moved he knows everything about rock everything about rap everything about hip-hop everything about every kind of aggressive music but he knows nothing about something higher that moves him john and that comes back to plato if you want to know the morality let me hear the music. And so it's the kind of thing where I look at, I think that is such a poverty that these people have not been exposed and, and immersed in beauty. And now the poor boy's going away for 30 years. Maybe if he was exposed and immersed in beauty, Mm -hmm. he would have looked at himself differently and looked at civilization differently. So when I'm in concert, that very first concert, I thought, this is a big test because these guys, everything about their existence is ugly, John, in those prisons. The, the lighting is ugly. It's, it's this fluorescent light that casts this dark shadow. The walls, there's no color. It's, the walls are ugly. There's no taste to the food. The way they dress is sloppy and, and unicolor. The way the guards talk to them is low. You know, you move, you move. The way they talk to each other is low. Everything is lowest common denominator. So I get comments from prisoners like I feel like I've been buried alive. I died the day I was sentenced. I have no hope. My reasons for living are all gone. There is nothing in that prison whatsoever that you would look at and say oh I am inspired by this. So John my hope is not to go in and just entertain. My goal is to go in and remind them of their humanity. So when I played with, uh, and, you know, I, 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 my, I have my sound system. So it was loud in there. And so it was louder than any rock concert. I, You know, I didn't want to be distracted by the audience. So I turn it up and it was loud and it was really engaging. These guys were up and screaming and they didn't know a violin from a hockey stick. John, they were, like my violinist was playing a solo and one guy in the middle just yells out, play your song. And it was beautiful that he was so moved. <laughs> And so at the end of it, they all come up and they were giving us hugs and the guards were like, no, no, this is not allowed. And I thought, okay, how do we stop it? So you just hug them back. And it was really, it was really beautiful that they were moved. But through that whole 90 minutes, you could have heard a pin drop. They were engaged and and, uh, they came in tough, slouching, disinterested, you know, bothered that they were woken up to come to this concert. And by the first 20 seconds, John, they were up and clapping and screaming and excited. And I just thought, what a shame that this is their first exposure to something like this. Shouldn't be for the elite in the concert halls. This should be everywhere. And that's why, John, I I promised myself I would never say no to anyone that wants an Eric Jenis concert.
0: Well, I'm glad you uh, have that mindset because you said yes to me when I invited you to play. And I look forward to us playing together and you performing in front of my friends and family. And um, I I think rather than waiting for that to happen live, why don't we play one of your pieces right now just so our audience can get a a, a flavor for what is moving these individuals who are behind bars for crimes that they've committed. these aren't innocent individuals for the most part. Mm -hmm. These are hardened criminals that you play for, that you try to bring beauty and life to. What, What song would you like to share uh, from one of your concerts that uh, that you'd like our audience to hear right now?
1: Yeah, that'd be great. Um, the first one I'd love to do is called Hero, if that's, a, if that's okay. Hero is a song I wrote for one of my heroes. And that's this young girl who is in a, a, um, a youth prison in Ohio. Um, this girl, John, if you asked me to write a horror film about um, somebody in their background, I couldn't have written, I couldn't have imagined this girl's life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pain the abuse the suffering is beyond that's why we have our judgments and you're right they're guilty there's no question but john so many of them come from backgrounds that are horrific and and so they're they're really a nightmare and so this this young girl came from a brutal background and she did what she did and now she's in 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 prison and she wrote me a letter i feel compelled to tell you about my life and at the end of it, she wrote, But I am determined to live a higher life. I know I can. I'm just not too sure how. I loved it. I wrote her back a letter of encouragement. But, John, it was her second letter that knocked me out. She wrote me and she started off by saying, I had a bad week. I gave into all my demons. I gave into my anger. I gave into my revenge. I gave into my, my hopelessness. I gave into, you know, sort of my, my being down. I gave into all my negative things. Yes. And then she said, And then she went on even lower and said, this is just my fate. This is just my destiny. I deserve no better than this. And then, so she's giving up now. And at the end of the letter, she said, but I am determined to climb out of this hole. I know this isn't correct. I'm just not too sure how. And John, I loved her for that. A couple of reasons. One, she didn't blame anybody. She didn't say if my, and she should have, and she could have. She did, but she didn't say, oh, if my father had been this way or my mother had been this way. I wouldn't have ended up in here. She didn't blame, never blamed. And she didn't count on people digging her out of the hole. Why doesn't someone save me? She knew she's got to climb out of the hole. People will help her, but she has to make the commitment and she's got to climb out of that hole. And three, John, she didn't give up that perseverance of, okay, I fell into all my demons. I gave into everything I thought I would never give into again. I fell. I disappointed others. I disappointed myself, but I'm back in the race. John, that is so good and so human. How many of us blame and will die, will die blaming other people? Well, this person did this and this person and we die with grudges. What good comes out of that? Nothing. And yet this girl knew that at 18. For those reasons, John, she's one of my heroes.
0: And the song you are about to hear is called Hero. It's composed and performed by Eric Jenis. it it, it moves me every time i hear you perform whether it's live or through the gift of technology being able to tune in even still i'd like you to share an experience from a prison where it seemed as if or whether it's collectively or even a single individual that they were not going to participate in this nonsense that you were putting in front of them this music these instruments this, this this momentary reprieve from their normal life they just wanted nothing to do with you and a conversion experience that took place, whether it was the entire room, or even within one individual that leaned forward when previously he'd been leaning back? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. John, that 15-year-old boy that I mentioned,
1: um, what was interesting was that boy that got 30 years sentence. that boy that went like that, he was about seven feet tall. He was an beautiful young african-american boy i walked in that boy was slouching and he was letting me know i'll have nothing to do with this so i sat down beside him i was not in a particularly good mood because they made my life very miserable coming into that prison you know but but i sat beside him and i and i said you know what i'm going to be on stage in about two minutes if you're not sitting up i'm leaving and he said i'm not sitting up so anyway, he wanted nothing to do with it, and he was clearly a leader in the room. But for him to stand up and do that in front of many, many other young criminals—what? Well, you, that's not cool. You have to. You—it's all status in prison. Um, another time, John, I was in Florida. Now this guy had been in prison since he was fifteen years old. They had to come to this concert. He stood at the back. This man—I mean, tattoos everywhere—just like this stoic arms crossed just staring he wasn't looking at me I was walking up and down the whole show and he wasn't looking at me at all and then at the end of the show and I wasn't clapping wasn't laughing wasn't you know participating at all and he had a couple of friends with him same thing but this guy was clearly the leader and at the end of the show, I said, any questions? And he walks up to the mic and I thought, okay, yeah. this is going to be drama I don't need, you know? And, um, and he, said, um, he said, I have had no control over my emotions for the last hour and a half. And then he looks at me and yells, what was it? It wasn't like he was, hey, what was that? It was, what was it? Right then, his, his um, um, therapist, psychologist came running from the side and grabbed my microphone. And I'm, I'm in a room here, John, with some really, yes. you know, tough people. So what's going on here, you know? And he grabs my mic and he starts yelling at me. He says, I've been trying to get him to speak for the last three years. How is it you've been able to get him to speak in an hour and a half? John, it's not me. It's the fact that the music somehow reached in. Maybe it was this man's, he's been in there since he was 15. This man did a he's close to 60 now. And he's been in there his whole life. This is all he knows is this ugliness, this ugly way of life. He knows nothing of his own dignity. He's human, John. The last I checked, we give up on nobody. And so the, you know, the, the, the psychologist commented, yes, and spoke, and here he is speaking to you. And all I could think of, something profound is going on in him that is beyond me. I played the piano, I wrote the music, but there was an encounter he was having yes. with, with the beauty that he was, he was sort of immersed in that changed him. And then, you know, he wrote me a beautiful letter. He said, I've hurt countless people. I'm responsible for over 100 deaths. He said, I will never hurt another person as long as I live. I've had a higher encounter with my own humanity. So, John, I look and I think beauty has such an important role. So much so that you and I are talking, obviously, in, in the midst of a pandemic right now. And there's, we've just had many, many race um, riots John, I'm going after those in a way that's positive. I'm going to be working with different inner cities to do all I can to uplift their humanity and to provide opportunity. If, If you're not willing to go into their communities where people are struggling and gangs are high and all this, Then we can't expect change nobody's going to put a policy that's going to make things better it's going to be love it's going to be you know sort of commitment but beauty plays a very big role we can't underestimate the impact so earlier when you were talking about modern music a lot of it concerns me that this is what our young are immersed in you know what should they be immersed in
0: eric do you think that in introducing beauty and music and togetherness and hope into these communities, and I'm referring to those not yet in prison, that it can, it can make a difference in decisions that are made after you leave that concert hall, after you leave that high school gym, after you leave that neighborhood block, or after you leave their family room?
1: Yeah, John, that's a great question. I believe it with my whole heart, so much so, John, I threw my life at it. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, I think when people are moved by beauty, they see themselves. What, and what made me say that was the, the opposite. It's playing in a super maximum security prison in California. It's called Pelican Bay. Pelican, they, when a judge says guilty, you're sentenced, they don't sentence them to supermax. They sentence them to a max. And then for the troublemakers, they go to the supermax. So it's a, the toughest of the tough, right? So this one boy, 23 years old, he comes clowning around with me after a show. So I'm there packing up my gear and, you know, thanking the guys as they're walking out and he comes clowning around and he says, Oh, I'll take it from here. And he starts saying, people would say, Hey man, great show. And he would, and he would say, Oh, it was nothing. So he's the clown. He's 23. And he said, yeah, I was sentenced yesterday. And I said, Oh, how'd it go? He said, yeah, I got three lifetimes. And I just paused. And I said, are you, are you doing okay? And without blinking John? Yeah. Can't cry over spilt milk. Okay. John, at what point in this boy's life did, I mean, from a young boy who has this awe and wonder for life and creativity and his own gifts and talents, young boy, I wanted to bring him home and adopt him. And I think young boy with all, with the world at his feet, at what point does he say, my wife, my life is worthless and useless. I have nothing to bring to the table. Who cares that I'm going to be spending the rest of my life behind bars? And I'm thinking, I care. I absolutely care and all of us care and all of us are worse off that you're behind bars and we're not benefiting from you as a young man, you as an individual, your thoughts, your opinions, your gifts and your talents. So John, it was then that I thought something is lost in humanity for them to be able to swallow that pill, that lie, that that misconception of who they are. So I am very very determined to go. I've started a little chapter, John, called Detour Moment, where I'm going in those ugly, ugly places and I'm gonna play, but I'm also taking an ex-criminal because John, when I, I've played hundreds of youth prisons, and you know what the sad reality is? You want your children to go to college and so do I, or develop a trade, develop a skill. You want them to, to go to, to endeavor in something. Yeah. These kids often, John. They don't want that. They want to go to big boy prison. They think if I kill that guy in the opposite gang, and he's in the opposite gang because he grew up across the street, not because he did anything, but if I can kill that guy, I'll be treated with respect in the big boy prison and I'll live like a king, which is a lie. And so that's, but that's what they think. So they're determined to go. So when I'm sitting down with some youth, I say, so how's it going? I said, what's the plan when you leave here? My plan is to come right back. That's what they often say. And John, it's no wonder. There's one boy that I played in, in, um, in uh, uh, um, California in this youth prison. At 11 years old, the boy got sick. His mother dropped him off at the hospital. John, she didn't pick him up. Just didn't pick him up. At 11-year-old boy, he did his crime, has been in prison for nine years now. He's 20. Nobody's ever visited him. No one his family is the guard. So he's violent, he's angry, he's determined to come right back. This is all he knows. That boy's as talented as your children and my children. That boy is as gifted and deserves an opportunity just like our children. So John, what am I doing? I'm going to do my best to go there and dispel that myth, to demystify the wonders of prison, of drugs, of, of, um, of gangs. If, and, and I'm going to, and, and so I've got, I've got a whole plan to try to and you know, sort of make that happen. You've
0: been living this plan and this mission for more than a decade and at expense, not only to yourself financially, but to your family. This is, uh, this is not quite as easy as leading orchestras and traveling around the world and being in and out of high-end hotels. You're in max security prisons, you're on the road a lot, you're driving yourself, you're carrying your own instruments, you're flying on your own dollar world-class mus- musicians in so that they may entertain and inspire these, these prisoners. <sighs> what would you say to those of us right now who feel as if there's no real reason for hope and that there's nothing we as an individual, individual can do to make the world a little bit better tomorrow than it was yesterday?
1: Right, that's, that's a great question. And I want you to know, John, I'm very human and I struggle with the same things. So at three in the morning when I'm driving home and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, and I'm, I'm having these conversations with some inmates, and, and it's, it's it's dirty, and it's ugly, and yet I have an all-night drive because the next morning I'm playing in a school, I struggle with it too. I'm thinking, why don't I just go home? And and I often joke saying, I'm going to go home and sell shoes and pretend that the world is okay. Yeah. And you look at all these lives and all these lives that are so broken and so forgotten, like on the weekends, John... Many inmates call me because they don't have families to call. So I'm, I'm their family. And, and I'm, I make my phone number available to them. And that's, that just breaks my heart. That's another thing of there's no hope, you know. But, John, this is how I look at it. I, I can't change the world. I'm one man. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very smart guy. I can write a bit of music, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I know I can work hard. And I know I can take amazing musicians, and I'm very grateful to them who, who perform my music. I can make a little bit of difference in my world. If we all collectively took the little gift we have and do it. John, you know what? I, when, when people march on the streets for different things and, and, and for rights, I often want to go and just say, Okay, I'm so glad you're so passionate. Why don't we all go downtown and tutor children in math and mentor them? That will take care of so many problems, you know? And so I I think people have good intention. They wanna do things. And I think there is so much to do, John. There's so many schools filled with children that don't have hope. If we together can build a community of people that are willing to go in and help these children, one by one we can make the world a better Mm -hmm. place because then we're affecting children then families then communities it can be done i refuse to think that we can't win this we can and it's going to be positive and it's going to be people on both sides of the political aisle and from different religious backgrounds being committed to helping people just by loving them and bringing your talents i can write a bit of music i'll bring my music People bring different things. John, we all admire you and your work. Everybody around the country knows John O'Leary and loves what you've done and look what you've overcome to do the things you've done. You're a great inspiration to me if we can be that kind of inspiration to other people. And I speak of you when I'm on the road, when people tell me how hard they have it, I think, let me tell you a story. And I tell them at the end, you can do this. You can do this. It's not gonna be easy. You may fail a million times in trying, but John, I'm never afraid to fail. I'm just afraid to give up and I'm afraid not to try. I'll fail more times. I promise you, John, 80% of my endeavors fail. But yeah. I'm gonna keep going I have no more breath in my lungs, you know? Well,
0: I think you've, you learned that as a little boy growing up in Canada. You learned it on the ice, on the ice up there, tying on your own skates. You've learned it throughout your travels throughout the world and certainly in and out of prisons, in and out of schools, in and of, in and out of the back waters where most people don't want to go. You've been going there, Eric. It's it's incredibly inspirational. You've also been going there at home. I met not only you in St. Louis last December. I met your wife. I met a few of your uh, colleagues from around the country. And I met this beautiful little 16-year-old girl named Anastasia. I also heard you brag not only about her, but a song you wrote for her that has moved me so profoundly. I listen to it almost every day. And so uh, it's a song in a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share your recording of, but before we get there, let's, let's do the backstory. Tell us about your daughter.
1: Oh, beautiful. My, my Anastasia has Down syndrome. And when she was born, it, it was, it, I mean, we didn't really know. To my shame, John, to my shame. I have to admit to you that when my daughter was born and I picked her up I remember being so excited there's going to be a birth and, you know, I parked illegally and all that to get my wife in on time. And and I was so excited and the doctor handed me the baby and I thought, oh, I think my baby has Down syndrome. And then I had to go and repark my car. And I remember feeling shocked and feeling disappointed to my shame, to my shame. My child has a soul and has life and has an awe and wonder like everybody else. John, these children are gifts. I want to share with you. We struggle with, you know, uh, well, I, I just want to share a quick story. We were in a nursing home playing and my daughter, you know, there was a woman who um, something happened in, in a hospital room. We had to after the plane, the nursing home, we walked through the hospital to get to the car. And and my daughter saw this woman crying. Now, I saw her, too. But I I turned and I saw my children there and I said, oh, I'm gonna buy you guys ice cream. And then I joked with them saying, you played really well today. Sam, you didn't make so many mistakes on that cello We're getting you two scoops, you know, and I'm talking ice cream as I'm walking past the woman. My daughter, Anastasia, went to the woman, crawled in her lap deliberately. She didn't look around John and say, is this cool? Are my friends gonna think this is the right thing to do? you and I suffer from those sort of assessments. She doesn't know. She crawled up, put her arms around the neck and she put her forehead to the woman's forehead. Mm. She didn't say, oh, is this politically correct? She didn't do any of that. She didn't say, hey dad, take a picture of me. I'm gonna post it on Facebook and people are gonna love this. She didn't, she doesn't know those things. And then you know what she did, John? She started to weep just as hard as the woman. And I remember turning around, looking at this beautiful human encounter. John, it was really the most moving thing I had ever seen. I'm looking at this girl in the eyes of the world. John, she's not going to be on the front cover of Vogue. Nobody's going to want to know her political opinion nobody's going to want to know how she feels about this or that rights or you know does she have rights or nobody's going to ask her in the eyes of the world oh poor thing well you know what poor nothing this girl she loves completely she started to weep this was true just completely undistracted Human compassion this encounter was what we should be to one another John I felt nothing when I walked by this woman and yet my daughter couldn't help but be Overcome with compassion and all I could think about John was when did I die? When did I think my life was so important that I could walk by this person and feel nothing and talk ice cream and worse I taught my I was talking ice cream with my children And yet this girl she lives a higher human life and so her brokenness may be on the outside john mine's clearly on the inside and much more serious so instead of complaining about it i'm on a mission to try to up my own compassion and when i speak with people be less judgmental and less quick to the oh i understand this and really learn about them and their situation and why they're so broken and they're so hurt. And so she's taught me a great deal. And you know, what's, what's really interesting is I was playing in a very heavily gang prison at one time. And this story, John, I'll just, it was probably the most moving for me. There was a guy who was the head of that room. Sometimes you just know through their interaction, through their signs, through their, Who's the head in the room? And this guy, good looking, young African-American man, big, strong guy. I had a great African-American singer on that tour. This guy wouldn't look at me the whole concert. I was joking around and I was looking at him. He wasn't looking at me. Everybody else was you know, laughing at the jokes. John, out of 10 jokes, I tell one funny one in concerts. <laughs> you know? So occasionally I'll get a giggle. So this gentleman wasn't, so, but he had questions. And so what he would say is, I have a question for the sister. In other words, I'm bypassing you. And he wouldn't look at me while he was going to ask the sister questions, which is my singer. And at the end of the con, uh, you know, after about five of these questions, I turned to him and I thought, I got to crack a joke here. So I turned to him and I said, pal, before the end of the show, you are going to call me brother. He didn't laugh. Didn't smile. Everybody else was laughing and giggling. And I kept on prompting him, right? I said, You have 15 minutes left in this show. You better figure this out. Nothing, John. Nothing. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm poking the wrong bear here. Maybe I should just let this go. At the end of the show, I went to his row. Now this is a gang leader, so yes. you know, not you know, and I kind of kicked everybody's legs, if you will, who were in that row, and now I'm right in front of them. John, have you ever been somewhere and you asked yourself, what am i doing here that was one of those times anyway so i'm in front of him and i said to him i said i just told the story of my daughter and i'm looking at him now i'm looking up to him because i'm kneeling down and he's sitting down and i'm looking up and i'm saying if you ever tried to teach my daughter to hate somebody because they made fun of her family my daughter wouldn't understand If you ever tried to tell my daughter to carry a grudge or to be passive aggressive against somebody because they were offensive in this way or that way, they insulted her looks or something, she wouldn't get it. And I said, if you ever tried to teach my daughter to hate somebody because they have a different skin color than you and they come from a different part of the world than you, she wouldn't get it. She wouldn't understand that all my daughter knows to do is love. I said, so how about you and I start, you and I start living a higher human life right now and we stop this let me imitate my daughter. And then he stood up. And that's when I thought, okay, John, this is where I die, right here, right now. I'm okay with that.
0: You know? Before you finish the story, I, I want the listeners to know, like you say that tongue in cheek, but you say it with full honesty as well. Like th- this is not a safe place. This is not a safe guy. And you are not in a safe situation on your knees in front of him. So um, right. although we can joke about it now with the interview going live, uh, yeah, but in real time, there's nothing funny about this experience. It's, it's an intense risk that you've taken kneeling uh, in front of him. So I'll, I'll let you yeah. share where it goes, but this is not a joke.
1: Yeah, No, you're, you're right. And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest. I was afraid it, it could have gone either way. He could have let everybody know that he wasn't going to put up with, the, you know, this guy, you know, yeah. And, and you know, um, so he stood up. And he quietly said, great show brother. And he hugged me, John, we've been sending letters back and forth. And I'm so honored by that. He's a friend for life. You know, he calls every time he writes a letter, he starts off dear brother, Eric. (laughs) And and so he called me brother then and he calls me brother now. And I think, you know, um, John, I want to walk down any journey I need to walk down to make any human person recognize their own dignity. And and John, we think we have a pandemic of COVID. We have much worse pandemic of lack of hope, lack of identity of who we are. And we as the adults and the leaders and, and the media and the and the entertainment world, we are delivering things to our children that maybe do not build them up and do not make them feel edified. And so I look at this and think, I'm not going to complain about it, but, but if I can deliver a little bit of hope through my music, that's the pandemic I'm after fighting COVID COVID and COVID kind will come and go and there will be fatalities and mortalities. And and I'm sad about that, but John, you know what the real heroes did in the past when there was pandemics they ran into it to help people they didn't run from it john and so i i and so um yeah so i look at it and i think we have to do all we can sometimes it means putting yourself into tough situations
0: well, the vaccine that you shared with that inmate on that day and you shared a thousand times leading up to that conversation and now you've shared with me many 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 times not only live you and me together but uh digitally through a cd and things that i've downloaded it's a song called here i am you wrote it for your daughter it's a gift to her and your family her three siblings but man it's a gift to anyone who's heard it so i'm gonna gonna play a bit of my favorite eric jenna song here it is it's called here i am Stay leaves your, conf- your conference, your concert, your conversation, whatever it may be, and this will be my final question before we shift into the Live Inspired 7, or when an individual leaves a podcast after hearing the music that you composed and the lives that you helped change, what's one thing that you hope is renewed within them?
1: My hope is that they are reminded of who they are, that we are all made with this beautiful, wonderful, mystical, unspeakable, profound, immeasurable dignity. There is nothing you can do to lose that. Oh, but if you would, if you know my past, we all have a past and things that we're all ashamed of and we've done things we're ashamed of and often we've omitted to do things that we should be ashamed of. And And so I look at this and I think, okay, Let that be your teacher, move forward. Move forward and recognize that you're on a path to know of your profound unspeakable dignity. John, that's what I'm after. That's what beauty can do. That's my hope.
0: Brother did it within me uh, in December. And every time I think of these stories or I hear you share, I hear you perform, it renews it. So a mission accomplished. I I don't do shameless plugs on this podcast. I just, I don't personally like being sold. So I've never tried to sell on these shows. I never try to sell, whether it's my my own products or someone else's. But Eric, I believe in so much what you're doing, it would be a mistake for me not to provide an opportunity for people to learn more about the work you do. You leave behind your spouse and your four children. You leave behind Anastasia. You leave behind the the success of the world. You had it all rolled out there, man. The red carpet rolling out in front of you and you made a left-hand turn to walk into the places where most of us run from and you've done this at great cost, not only to your family, but also great cost to you financially. You, you, you are now supported through the generosity of those who invite you in or support you from afar. Where can the rest of us learn more about your work and, and uh, opt in to support you?
1: And Thank you so much, John. I think the easiest would be just my website, and that is just ericgenis.com. So, um, and people will get to know, I do have a 501c3 called Concerts for Hope, and so I, you know, what I do is I go around and I play concerts, and yeah, I ask people to contribute. I thought, you know, we're not all called to go into the prisons, but maybe they can help by bringing me in because I have to pay for the musicians and the travel and all that. And you know, so anyway, if people can help, that sure, it helps a great deal, and a hundred percent of the money goes to that.
0: So it's ericjanis.com. We'll of course have a link to that in our show notes. I strongly encourage you, my friends, go there, listen. Observe what is taking place in the hearts and the, and the minds of the individuals that are listening to this music. And then if you're moved to, give generously. Um, so Eric, I, I appreciate you, brother. We have seven questions that tie all of our guests together. The very first one, it's a layup for you. I know you're a well-read guy. What is the best book, your favorite book, the most moving book you've ever read?
1: Um, well, it's, it's sort of a, a reread. Um, it's called The Imitation of Christ. Um, I, I, it's something that I read and reread and reread. And the, the reason is that it's very inspirational. It's one of those simple reads, but very tough to, to sort of grab. And, you know, and it's for non-religious people too. You don't have to know anything about Christ or anything like that whatsoever to embrace this. But for me personally, um, it, it's, it's just a constant reminder. Look, you're here to serve others. You're not here for the, the golden parachute. You're not here for, you know, your, to pad your retirement. You're here to serve others. That is the highest sort of human encounter is love. That's what we all deeply seek. All this other stuff, John, is a distraction. So we can live without everything we have. If we, you know, people who go and do work in different countries that are very poor say, oh, look how happy they have, and they have nothing Well, they have love. And so I think, you know, it's just a constant reminder, detach from all the things that bog you down, all the things that you worry about. And, And so that book helps me very much it reminds me of that. It, it reminds me of what a poor job I am at doing that. So, um, so that's for me the best.
0: Tell me what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Canada with ice skates on and uh, Bach in front of you on the, on the piano sheets that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today. So what was the characteristic you once had that you wish you had more of right now?
1: It, the first thing that pops to mind, and I'm just, I'm just trying to think it through really quickly, as soon as you said that, it's like, I was fearless. I was fearless, you know? And then I think, okay, am I fearless now? No, I'm careful. I'm cautious. Um, and so I think, um, you know, I hesitate, not like I did when I was a child. When I was a child, John, I was fearless. So all these, you know, going into a prison and all that, John, times 10 you know, when I was a child, and so- um,
0: Your poor mother. (laughs) Although I would suggest a man who's in a maximum security prison, who's turned his life away from the the riches of the world and is now kneeling in front of uh, a man who will never leave that prison. A man who has turned his back and said, I'll never call you brother ever. I would suggest you've got a, f- a far more fearlessness than you might even know. So uh, I appreciate ah. you and I look up to you and I, I hear you, but I wonder sometimes if you see how courageous you are, Eric. If your wow. home caught fire and your four little ones, now they're a little bit older, and your wife and your animals, all the people in your life are out of your home and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's that one thing that you would come out with?
1: Oh boy. Um. You know, I'm thinking of, can I have two?
0: <laughs> have one two. is there's. A, you may have one for the left, one for the right.
1: Okay. <laughs> one is, um, just one thing would be just my computer because all my music is on there. All the piece I've written, all the violin parts, all the cello parts, all the orchestral parts. My whole life work is on there and I do have it backed up, but you never really know about the backups. So no. it would would be one so as far as things are concerned and everybody in my family is safe that's one thing and the other thing would just be a, a photo that I love of my parents who both died this year so just that photo now I could have that photo reproduced but that was an original photo
0: yeah so
1: just that that means a great deal to me yeah
0: Thank you. if, if you could sit on a bench on a perfect gorgeous day and have a nice long conversation with anybody, living or dead, who would you want to be seated right next to, Eric?
1: My wife, John. Wow. So um, she knows everything about me. My wife is, one thing I really want to say is my wife is really, really a a strong, she encourages my work, you know, and she encourages me. And she, um, you know, when I look around and I think, Leslie, this is, you know, this is sort of what are we doing? You know, stay focused, Eric. Life is short. Go. You know, we, you know, just go. You know, use use the gifts that you have. They're on loan for just a short time, and then we die. Go. And so I love that, and I need to be reminded of that. And when I look in her eyes and I look at who she is, I'm reminded of that. So she's she's. Um, so in terms of if I was entitled to one conversation. Does, you know, it would definitely, you know, be her. So, but if, if it's sort of like, well, you can have that anytime you want. Who else would it be? Right now, there's one guy that I admire so much, John, that I have to, um, you know. There's a guy that, that, you know, not too long ago, the whole concept of leprosy. I love this guy's vision. His name is Damien. And Damien went to Hawaii. And he knew that he was gonna die of leprosy. He knew it, and he knew he would never make it back on the mainland, and this guy was big, strong, good-looking, and he knew he was gonna die a horrible death, but he went because he loved the people that were hurting, that were suffering, and that everybody could forget about, right? He was 100% forgotten. So these people were forgotten, just, you know, they got leprosy, throw them on an island, get rid of them, out of sight, out of mind, they're lonely, who cares? He went to console them, to comfort them, to hang out with them. And he did, he died a brutal death. And I think, you know, that's not the most important thing. That's not the saddest thing. His courage and his love for others and giving his life, giving that which is, that is perceived as the most valuable for the comfort and care of other people. That's, John, that's human. That's who we are. I love that. So I would love to talk to him and I'd love to ask him all the questions that you know you and I were discussing today. What did that feel like? Were you afraid? And you know, um, but he went, John. And I think, okay, keep going, keep going. You're discouraged, keep going. You know, it's always the right thing to do, to keep going, no matter how many times you do the wrong thing and just keep going, you know.
0: Mm. And that is a message we all need to hear with one and a half million individuals who attempted to take their own life in 2019 you, you have value you have dignity there is beauty keep going keep going you are not alone so eric thank you for the reminder of damien I, I read about him when i was a kid like eight years old and uh could not imagine a guy leaving his home going out to hawaii not for a vacation but to serve and not just to serve but but ultimately to die to die yeah. serving those who are most at need so um, it's a beautiful uh Beautiful name to bring up. I appreciate you You're talking about Damon, Damien. What's the best advice he, your wife, or anybody else that you trusted and looked up to ever gave you?
1: We all have shortcomings. All of us have shortcomings, John. You are, you are, you know, like, I pray. Why do I pray? I pray, John, because I'm a broken man. I'm broken. I'm hurt. I've got faults. I've got shortcomings. I wish I was, you know, this great thing, but I'm not, but that's okay. I've got to keep fighting. I I can't let my own shortcomings and my impatience and my, you know, and my discouragement and when I do the wrong thing, and I, I'm 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 sorry for it. You get right back on that horse, John, and you go. You don't. Well, look, you know, I'm I'm not good enough to do this work, or I'm not. We so many times we let we become paralyzed with with our own faults, and they may be legitimate faults, and you know, and these are things that we overcome. Good. Let them keep you humble. Let them keep reminding you that you've got things to overcome. That's good. It's good that you don't become too proud and say, oh, look, I've championed this and that, that our faults constantly remind us that we're broken people, but don't let it stop the beauty in you anyway. John, it was a reminder, you don't have to be perfect to get, you don't have to be perfect to do good things for people. You don't have to be perfect to go and make a difference in this world. All you have to do is Keep trying your best. And if you fall, back up, back up on that horse.
0: Eric Janus, it has been said that all great composers, parents, husbands, sons, leaders, servants, inmates, uh, servants in life can have their stories, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: Oh, okay. Um... So summed up in one sentence, um, um, John. I'm 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 not very good with words, so I'm going to give you an idea, and someone much more eloquent can put it into a sentence. But just the concept of um, I never measure success. So although some of the performers that you mentioned earlier can, with one YouTube hit, hit you know 20 million people and I'm going to play to prisoners who who are forgotten who are never known there's no press there's no cameras there's nothing I'm going to play for 30 people and then driving all night and playing for 30 more people and then not getting sleep and playing for 30 more I never measure success it's not for me to measure it's not for me to guide and so I look at it and I think you don't measure success you just have the fortitude to just keep going to what you know is right, and when you fall off the path to what you know is right, you just jump right back on, you make amends, and you keep fighting for what you have the gift to fight for.
0: Eric, Jennis never measured success, and yet in showing up, and in serving, and in being love, and in exemplifying mercy, he taught the rest of us what success looks like. So Eric, I wanna thank you for your heart for the least among us, including myself. I want to thank you for your love of me and um, the beauty that you share and sing and perform into a world starved for it. So brother, it's been an honor growing with you and it's, it's going to be re- so rewarding watching the work you do in, in the years to come.
1: Great, well, that's an honor. Thank you so much for your kind words, John. Such an honor to be on your show and to be part of your family and to be part of, uh, of your extended family on, on your podcast. Thank you for the invite, John.
0: Well, my friends, while your fingers do the the dial and over to the website, JohnO'LearyInspires.com to go to the show notes and to observe exactly more of the work that Eric is doing. What I wanna do is to take you to the finish line by playing another one of his pieces. This one, the title is a word he used a moment ago called mercy. So uh, I wanna thank you for your mercy. I wanna thank you for the grace that you show to those around you in the marketplace. I wanna thank you for showing up I want, I want to thank you all for believing like I do that the best days remain in front of us. So for this time and until next time, that is Eric Jenis. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live inspired. word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies builds communities with the power of one. Six distinct brands come together as one single source for construction, infrastructure, technology, wireless, logistics, and development solutions. Their true differentiator is building people within communities through their world-class culture focused on safety, education, community service, wellness, and inclusion, all using their unique strategic process to achieve results on purpose, lovingly called the Keeley way. Keeley companies is beyond proud to sponsor the live inspired podcast and aligns with a vision of making the world a better place.